This is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today didn't start out her career intending to be a writer. Instead, she trained as a classical violinist before turning to literature, earning a doctorate in English at University College London, where she focused on women's writing of the 20th century. She's the author of The Lodger and also The Dragon Lady, and her newest book, Mad Woman, is an historical reimagining of the American journalist Nellie Bly, whose extraordinary work helped to uncover the horrors of one of New York City's most notorious mental asylums. Louisa Chega, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you, Georgina. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really, really lovely to meet you. This book is extraordinary about this fabulous journalist and the huge, huge risks she took. And we'll, we'll get on to that in a moment. But you took quite a risk yourself because, <laughs> uh, as I said earlier, you, you radically switched careers. So tell us first about, about music, your first love. Yes, of course. Well, I trained as a classical musician and I freelance for a couple of years, you know, in orchestras, recording studios, I I taught a bit. And actually the switch in careers happened to me. It wasn't something I chose. I got ill. I came down with ME or chronic fatigue. And so I had to take a year out and I couldn't lift the violin to my chin, much less perform. But actually something very positive came out of it because it gave me a chance to rethink my life. I realised that I wanted to work with words and not music. And as it turned out, music was fantastic training for being a writer, not least because it taught me the discipline to glue my bottom to the chair and spend hours alone honing my craft. I think discipline is the most important attribute for a writer. And there are so many parallels between music and writing, like rhythm, tone, colour, alliteration, onomatopoeia, dialogue. I mean, I could go on and on. And music's all about the minute acoustic differences between sounds and so is language and so I feel very strongly that nothing's ever wasted in life and also writing gives me the same kind of fulfillment as performing. Yeah I mean as Nora Ephron said it's all material isn't it? Absolutely. (laughs) But you actually then decided to go and study literature before you started writing. That's right that's right so I went to university college which was wonderful and I got a degree and a doctorate and my speciality was as you said early 20th century writers but um, my doctorate focused on Dorothy Richardson who was this amazing pioneer both as a writer and in the way she lived her life. She wrote Stream of Consciousness in English before James Joyce, Virginia Woolf or anyone else so I think that's really a remarkable achievement. Um, I finished my PhD with terrible morning sickness And then I had twins. And for years, I used to use my thesis to prop up their cots. You know, when a baby (laughs) has a a stuffy nose and needs to be a little bit upright. And I remember thinking to myself, well, at least I'm using my PhD for something. But, you know, all those endless 
years of feeding them and changing nappies and all of that, an idea was percolating in my brain. And that was that Dorothy's story was really fascinating and should be retold you know, in a novel. And that's how my first novel, The Lodger, was born. And I haven't looked back. Extraordinary. And, and what an extraordinary woman. What a, a, and a much overlooked woman. Why do you think that is? Oh, goodness. You know, I think she's so remarkable. And I, I think she deserves to be better known. But her, her kind of masterwork was a 12-volume novel sequence called pilgrimage which was based on her life it was what we call autofiction today and it's quite challenging because it's you know completely from her sort of alter ego Miriam's consciousness there's no outside view and as Miriam gets older and her consciousness gets more complex I found it harder and harder to read so possibly it's it's the challenges of her writing, but, you know, I I still think she should be far better known. Mm. I'd like to talk a little bit about your illness because Emmy is often something that we're told people don't recover from. Yes, that's right. And I had it, I mean, it was a good 20 years ago when very little about it was known. And, you know, lots of doctors said it's just in your head. They didn't even recognise it. I was lucky to have a sympathetic doctor. And... So, as I said, I had a year of being pretty debilitated, flat on my back. I somehow managed to shake it off. I was very lucky. I was determined, you know, to shake it off. And it gradually eased. And I survived having twins and all the night feeds and everything else that entails. And that's when I knew I was really well, because I thought, you know, if I can get through that, I'm better. Absolutely. Tell us about the next book, The Dragon Lady. So The Dragon Lady is about another pioneer. My my theme seems to be these trailblazing women who refused to conform and who were ahead of their time and suffered for it, but they broke boundaries and pushed societal norms. So Virginia was this amazing free spirit. As a young girl, and this was during Edwardian times, she had an enormous snake tattooed all the way up her leg. Rumour had it that only her husband knew where it ended. Um, So she was a total rebel. And she married Stephen Courthold, who was the youngest brother of Samuel Courthold, founder of the Courthold Institute of Art. And they renovated Elton Palace together. They turned it into an epitome of modern design and decadence. And I do urge anyone who hasn't been to Elton Palace to go and visit it because it's truly extraordinary. It's kind of Hollywood meets the Tudors. They've renovated it, so it's exactly as it was in the Courtauld's day. But Virginia was never really accepted into British society. She was a too-divorced foreigner accustomed to saying whatever popped into her head. And so the couple moved to what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, where they built a replica French chateau in the middle of nowhere and filled it with, you know, superb art and all the creature comforts. I've been there. 
Oh, have you? Uh, and it's absolutely fascinating walking through yes. those rooms, which yes. uh, until a, a little while ago were as they'd left them. And in the great big picture window, they had a diamond stylus. Yes. And people would yes. sign their names on the glass. And there's, there's Princess Margaret and things like that. Exactly. It was like a, a visitor's book mm. in glass. So I went there too on my research and... I slept in Virginia's bedroom, which was, you know, exactly as she left it, down to the the rings left by her nighttime glass of gin on the bedside table. And, and it really is extraordinary. Yeah. But anyway, they, they sympathised with the, you know, the liberation movement. And that made them very unpopular with their white neighbours. And it basically got them into deep water and that's the drama of my book. Mm. And of course they did great cultural things in Zimbabwe they endowed a college of music there's a yes. whole art institute, I mean just it, wonderful, wonderful things. Exactly, a farming school and so many other things and there's actually a really interesting story because they donated 90 works of art to the National Gallery in Harare and that collection has vanished. At one point, uh, we went to look for those works um, into the storage vaults at the National Gallery, which was fascinating because there were all these these paintings that just weren't being displayed. Yes. We didn't find yes. those paintings, but we did notice that the uh, the person who's now dead, who used to run the National Gallery, did have his shirts made in German Street. <laughs> that is very interesting. I mean, there's definitely a story there. I went to the National Gallery too. We must we must talk after the show. And I wasn't actually allowed down into the vaults and they brought a few works up, but you know, they were not the cream of the collection mm. by any means. Yeah, it's very much an enduring mystery in Zimbabwe. Yes. People are very aware Absolutely. of it and, you know, it's something people people keep an eye out for. Now we come to this wonderful book, Mad Woman. It's just been published in paperback. The hardback's done incredibly well. It's a book of the year in The Times and The Sunday Times. And this is about the pioneering journalist uh, Nellie Bly. Now, she started off life called Pinky. Yes, that's <laughs> right. So she was born in Pennsylvania in 1864, she was the daughter of a judge and she grew up competing with two older brothers. She was born Elizabeth Cochran. And her mother insisted on dressing her in pink frocks and white stockings. And amid the other little girls in their drab greys and basic browns, she stood out like a sore thumb. But I think that was part of, you know, what made her different and determined mm. to stand out. There was a, a big tragedy in her early life. That's right. Her father died suddenly without making a will, which left his family destitute. Nellie was actually one of 15 children because her mother was her dad's second wife and there were 10 children from a previous marriage. And Nellie's mother remarried, but the new husband was a violent drunk and the family went through five years of hell before the mother divorced him, which was a huge, you know, disgrace and scandal. And Nellie's life was turned upside down and she had to learn to survive, to live a new life, to do without things she'd had before, like, you know, material things and education. And I think 
those years were important because they gave her a tremendous sense of kinship with the marginalised. I think when she was a, a judge's daughter, she really didn't, you know, have any sense of what it felt like being marginalised. But when they lost their money and their status, she really did. So I think that maybe is the reason why she chose, you know, part of the reason why she chose the kind of assignments she did. Mm. And as you said, she got her first big scoop by faking madness. Let's let's halt there for a minute because, of course, she's a, a real per- She was a yes. real person. Yes, yes. Uh, but you write it, we see inside her mind, we see a lot of small details, things yes. that, that obviously have to have been f- fictionalised. How do you balance that writing of, of, a, of a real person into this big, wonderful, intimate, rich story? That's a great question. The basic rule of thumb is where there are biographical facts... I stick as closely to them as possible. And I like the form of fictionalised biography because it gives me the wiggle room to gain emotional access to my characters. And that is, you know, what really sort of interests me as a writer. And it allows me to invent private conversations and get inside their thoughts but there's always a, always a method to it it's always to draw out themes in the story that I find interesting. Mm. So at the time when she was alive she got into journalism really quite by accident because women weren't yes. allowed to, to really work at anything apart from the, a few traditional jobs. Women had incredibly limited roles And yes, it's a very lovely story how she got into journalism. So she was struggling, you know, finding work as a nanny, servant, those kinds of jobs which left her deeply unfulfilled. And they were living, the family was living in Pittsburgh. And one day, Nellie came across an editorial in the Pittsburgh Dispatch called What Girls Are Good For. And it basically said that women who work are a monstrosity and are women's places in the, in the home. And this made Nellie so angry and emotional that she fired back this response to the editor. And I think all the disappointments and struggles she'd endured went into this letter. And she said to him, but, you know, you've forgotten that some women have no choice but to work. And, you know, my mother and I are those women. And it was so passionate that even though it was one in a heap of letters on the editor's desk, it caught his eye and he invited her to come into the office. And she convinced him to give her a job as a proper reporter. You know, there were women reporters, but they were only allowed to report on very limited things like fashion and society gossip. But she got a job as, you know, a reporter of hard news, which I think gives you some idea of her extraordinary determination Mm. and her iron will. And she was writing very much about the deprived women of Pittsburgh. She went into the factories, for instance. Yes, exactly. She reported on the horrible conditions in factories. She went into the slums and she actually made big businessmen very angry because they didn't want all of this to be broadcast. And so what happened was they threatened to withdraw advertising from the paper. And, you know, the editor, George Madden, couldn't afford that. So he put Nellie back 
writing the kind of story she hated, you know, beekeeping, butterfly collecting, arts reviews. Isn't it funny how the media industry hasn't really changed? No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, I think we'll talk more about it later, but that's one of the things that fascinated me so much about Nellie Bly, about how much things have changed, but how little. Mm. So she was very frustrated in Pittsburgh and thought the time had come to, yes. to move on. Also because, of course, her family was the, the big kind of source of gossip because of her mother's divorce and how violent her stepfather had yes. been. And she goes off to New York to make her fortune. That's right. So when she gets to New York, she actually struggles a lot. She goes from newspaper office to newspaper office. And every one of them says no to her because she's a woman. And she begins to realise that she needs an extraordinary scoop to get taken seriously in an industry run by men. So she goes to the New York World, which is the cutting-edge newspaper, and it's owned by Joseph Pulitzer of Pulitzer Prize fame, who is another extraordinary character, and that he plays a cameo role in my book. But there's, you know, a novel or several novels waiting to be written about him. And she persuades Pulitzer and John Cockerell, his managing editor, to allow her to fake madness and get committed to the notorious lunatic asylum on Blackwell's Island off the coast of New York. And the asylum was absolutely brutal. There were, you know, rumours circulating about patient abuse. And at first they say to her, you can't possibly do it. You don't have the bodily and mental strength to survive. But with this iron will that I've spoken about, she somehow convinces them to let her go. And so she begins faking madness, and this is just fascinating the yes. way she does it. And the fact that people, qualified medical professionals, sign off on it. No, absolutely. So she, she basically takes a room at a cheap boarding house and proceeds to lose her mind. And by bedtime... She's been so successful that one of the boarders says, you know, I'm scared to stay with such a crazy being. And her friend adds, she'll murder us all before morning. And as you said, she's examined by these respectable mainstream, you know, members of society like the police judges and doctors. And they're all totally taken in by her performance. And obviously she was a good actress, but I think, as well, perhaps they couldn't conceive of a sane woman pretending to be mad. Mm. So, as you say, it's very successful. She spends a bit of time in hospital. Eventually, she's shipped out to the island. Yes, yes. And then it just becomes a horror show. Yes. So, the asylum, the conditions are awful. The patients are freezing cold. They're half-starved and the nurses are sadistic and brutal. And Nellie's really submerged in this experience, witnessing these atrocities daily. And another thing is that before she leaves Pulitzer and Cockerell, she says to them, how will you get me out? 
and when. And they say, we've no idea. Just play your part and get in. So as the days pass in this horrific place, Nellie really starts to panic. There's no word from the newspaper. Mm, mm. There is a chance for her to save herself when somebody she knows that's right. visits her and she actually passes up on it. Yes, that's right. So, so a reporter she knows turns up. And, I mean, she was just extraordinarily brave. She felt she hadn't seen everything she had to see and experienced everything she had to experience in order to tell her story. And, of course, later when he goes... And the days are dragging on and she feels herself, you know, succumbing to depression and real illness herself. She curses herself. She says, why Why did I pass up that chance? Mm, mm. And she does really. I mean, you begin to really worry she is going to completely yes. lose yes. it. The yes. nurses are so sadistic. It turns out later they are, in fact, prison warders because the island can't recruit people. That's right. But she also experiences one of the first talking cures. Uh, she sees a, a lovely psychoanalyst. Well, he's very unusual in the asylum because at that time, most doctors believed that madness was because of demonic possession and the treatments were really, you know, primitive and brutal along the lines of bloodletting and similar cures. But there was a new and growing scientific approach to mental illness and um, Nellie is lucky enough to get you know, a, a more scientific and progressive doctor. And so she tells him about her traumatic past and it's really incredibly difficult for her to open up to him because, you know, what happened to her made her very closed up and self-reliant. But she ends up telling him everything and when she's finished, he says to her, aha, I think we might have got to the root of your illness. You know, mental wounds cause madness and it's clear you've been wounded. And there's actually a lot of interplay in the book between the very porous lines between sanity and madness. Mm. Because Nellie thinks, you, you know, well, maybe I am mad. And maybe she is, because by the standards of the day, she would have been pretty mad to put herself through that ordeal. But then if she she thinks, well, if sanity is the lot of most women, I don't want it. And of course, what she did was really become the first investigative reporter. That's right. So she actually launched, well, she changed the face of journalism and she created the first real place for women as regular members of the newspaper's staff and an important part of the editorial team. Because she is rescued, they do get her they out. They do eventually. <laughs> but in doing so, she changed the face of journalism. She created, well, she catalyzed a new journalistic movement known as stunt or detective reporting, which was the acknowledged forerunner of investigative journalism. And I think she paved the way and inspired generations of female journalists on both sides of the Atlantic. Mm. What happened to the asylum? So when she came out, she wrote her own articles about her experiences and they were told with great empathy and great passion and... Really, you know, she didn't shy away from the brutal conditions, so they were very powerful. And there was an investigation of the asylum and officials ended up giving nearly a million dollars for the care of the mentally ill. 
And in 1887, which was when it all happened, this was an extraordinary sum. So there were reforms, but sadly, as is still the way today, corruption's exposed, reforms happen, and then things gradually start to slide downhill again. So after my book ends, the asylum is closed down. You actually visited the site? Oh, I didn't. It was incredibly powerful. It's known as Roosevelt Island today, and it's been gentrified. There are are schools and shops and apartment buildings, and all that's left of the asylum is its octagonal tower, which is now a part of a posh apartment complex. But as I walked around, I couldn't help picking up a sad and eerie atmosphere. In Nellie's time, the island was home to a smallpox hospital, a workhouse, and a prison as well as the asylum. So it was literally the Isle of the Undesirables where people were shut away so that they were out of sight and out of mind to ordinary, respectable New Yorkers. And you can feel that. And also the ruin of the smallpox hospital is still standing. And it's this extraordinary ivy-covered, crumbling apparition, really. It looks like it's lost to time. And another thing that was important about my visit was that as I stood on the site of the asylum and looked out at Manhattan, it's so close. You can see people going about their lives on the other side. And it must have felt like it was in touching distance. Mm. And I just found that so poignant because most of those women didn't come out of the asylum. There was, you know, almost no attempt at rehabilitation and cure. So once they were shipped out there, that was it. And some of them did try and swim across and they called them river runners, but there were patrol boats and there were strong currents and not one of them made it. But it it really made the novel spring to life for me. Now, her analyst, she meets up with him once she's out. um, And there is a suggestion of a romance there. And indeed, you say later in the book that there might be biographical evidence that, in fact, they became lovers, although she would never marry him. Exactly. So I don't want to give away the whole plot, but there was definitely an attraction there. Mm. And yes, there was this continual suggestion in the press that maybe they were lovers, but it wasn't in Nellie's character to settle down and become a doctor's wife. And yet, in something which there's very little written about, uh, she does eventually marry to a man who's much, much older than her. I found this really fascinating. So when she was 31, she married Robert Seaman, who was one of the leading industrialists of the day. And I've really struggled to understand what made her marry him. You know, in his portrait, he's a severe-looking Victorian gentleman, very stern, very proper. And I don't know whether maybe she wanted a break, you know, maybe wanted to be taken care of. Maybe she wanted to learn business from him. But his family hated her because they didn't want her to get her hands on his fortune. They made life very difficult for her. I can't imagine that it was a happy marriage. But he died after five years and Nellie went on to run his business, the Ironclad Manufacturing Company, and she became one of the leading female industrialists of the day. And she actually patented 
you know, inventions that are still used today, like the 55 gallon steel oil drum for some reason that that fact (laughs) sort of stuck in my head and will always be with me but unfortunately employee fraud and a sequence of legal issues forced the company into bankruptcy and actually I think she wasn't helped by her middle managers who must have been horrified by this young female upstart who came in and and of course she wanted to put all her progressive ideas about better housing, better pay for the workers and so on into practice. So I think they probably created her downfall, you know, check after check was Mm. was written and yeah, the company didn't survive. And that's not something you go into in any great detail in the book, it sort of happens afterwards. It happens afterwards, but there is definitely a novel to be written about the first female industrialist. And afterwards, after the company folded, Nellie went back to journalism. And I I think another theme in my book and in Nellie's life is how journalism saves her again and again. In the same way that it also drives many who do it mad. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. That's definitely a very fine line. (laughs) But but there is something, I think, about about needing that rush, about the adrenaline, about chasing deadlines, uh, that does uh, point to somebody who perhaps has some kind of emotional issue. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. And that's probably as true in Nelly's time as it is now. Yeah, yeah. So who's the next great woman we're going to see from your pen? So I'm continuing my theme of strong women who live by their own rules. And my next subject is Dora Maar, Picasso's mistress and muse. And she's best known as being his weeping woman. But that really annoys me because it's like the only interesting thing about her was that she cried (laughs) when in fact she was this incredibly gifted, brilliant and beautiful photographer. So she was an artist in her own right. They inspired each other. They got into each other's work. But of course, you know, he was a genius and he was impossible. So it's also a portrait of an abusive relationship and the effect that has on Dora. And he would be totally cancelled now, wouldn't he? I suppose he would. I think men at that time behaved appallingly because they could get away with it. Yeah, yeah. Louisa, what a pleasure to talk to you. And this book just is wonderful and just really inspiring. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Mad Woman by Louisa Traeger is published by Bloomsbury and it's out now in both hardback and paperback. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Monica Lillis. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.